Well, as I said just a moment ago, we've been working our way through the book of Genesis. And uh, as we've been working our way through the book of Genesis, we've come to a man named Abraham. The name Abraham in the Bible is synonymous with faith. In the New Testament, he's referred to as the father of faith. And uh, he's the example of what it means to, to walk with God in a relationship of faith. And what's so interesting about that, if you've been part of our study, you'll realize very quickly that Abraham doesn't start out as much of a man of faith. Now, am I the only person who's noticed this? As a matter of fact, is it? Good, good. Join me, folks. So as, as we go through, we've noticed that Abraham's made some real blunders, and, and uh, that encourages me. But Abraham, like us, begins his walk of faith, and he begins to grow in this relationship of faith with the Lord. And as God is constantly growing you and I in this relationship of faith with him. It's not just a, a religion of rules and rituals and regulations. It's something other than that. And it's a growing relationship, a growing faith. Notice on your outline from James chapter 1, a couple of verses. I'm, I'm going to read it. You can follow along. You're certainly familiar with this passage. And it says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, very quickly, anybody here facing a trial? Anybody? Anybody? Yes? Yes? I see that hand in the back. Yes. Is there another? Every one of us right now is facing something in our lives. Right now, each and every one of us is praying about something that just hasn't come to pass. Right? Every, every one of us. There's an area in our life that, that just doesn't make sense, and we're wondering, why in the world is it like this? Why in the world isn't it working out? Well, James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So God's up to something. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, there's a couple of things in this passage. First of all, we can all agree that apparently it's God's goal that you and I grow in our faith. Can we agree on that? Next, uh, we notice that trials, various trials, are allowed to come into our lives in order to test our faith. And uh, the result of this testing of our faith should be or should result in a growing faith. And the Bible says when you and I come to these places where our faith is being tested and we don't understand it, why isn't it working out and how, is, how in the world can God be in this circumstance? The Bible says if you, if you don't get it, you turn to God, you ask God for wisdom, and if you ask in faith, then he will give it to you. So apparently, not only do these trials come to grow our faith, but it's to grow us in a relationship that causes us to be dependent on our Heavenly Father. Now, over the past couple of weeks, starting in Genesis chapter 12, we have looked at Abraham's tests of faith. Abraham's tests of faith are the same tests that you and I will face. Abraham has to go through this test. As he, tests, as he goes through this test, he goes on to the next test, the next test, and the next test. And, and uh, hopefully he's growing in this. So what are some of the, the tests that he's faced? Well, you'll recall in chapter 12, and you want to write this down, the, the test is simply this. Will I trust enough to follow into the unknown? And you'll recall that God comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham is an unbeliever. He doesn't know God. God speaks to him and says, Abraham, I want you to follow me. And I want you to follow me to a land that you've never been. And you'll recall as we looked at that that Abraham begins to follow, but he doesn't follow completely. God says, there's something I want you to leave behind, and uh, he doesn't leave that behind. He takes it with him. So we see, you know, he kind of does good there in that test, not completely, but not pitifully. You know, he's just beginning. Well, then the next test we saw in chapter 12 is the test of where he asked, uh, you know, will I trust him to take care of me in difficult times? Well, you'll recall that God leads Abraham to the promised land, and as he goes into the promised land, he he enjoys what he's seeing, but all of a sudden, there is a famine in the land. And you and I would say it's the first sight of danger, difficulty, and Abraham sees this, and he knows that God has led him to the promised land, but as he sees this, his first response as he faces this trial, this test, is not to seek God, but simply to run to Egypt. And you and I would say Egypt represents in the Bible typically the... The world, absolutely. So Abraham goes back to the world. And uh, you'll recall what a disaster that turns out. 
Well, he comes back to the Lord, and as he comes back to the Lord, chapter 13 begins. And then chapter 13, the test is very simply, will I trust him when it looks like I might lose out? I might lose something. Will I trust God to be God if it appears that I might be losing something? And you'll recall the story in chapter 13. Abraham comes into the land. He has his nephew Lot. He's not supposed to be in a relationship with this, with this guy. And they both have flocks, and the flocks are too great for the land. And Abraham comes to Lot, and he says, look, here, here's the thing. We, we can't coexist here in this area, so one of us is going to have to move. Here's what I'll do. I, I'm going to trust in God, and, and here's what you do. You just, you just determine which area you want, which direction you want to go, and I'll go somewhere else. You decide. And so Abraham, in this case, trusts the Lord, even though it looks like he might really lose all of the good land, and Lot certainly does choose the good land for himself, but God is in the details, and Abraham passes that test. So we got a so-so pass, you know, not really, not really bad. We got a failure, and now we've got a good test, and that's, that's good. Well, then there's chapter 14, which is the next test in Abraham's uh, growing walk of faith, and it's very simply, will I trust him with my finances? And you'll recall the story where he comes to Melchizedek, who's the king of righteousness, who's also king of Salem, which is just simply the Hebrew word for, for king of peace, and we looked at that. And Abraham brings to God, he brings to Jesus in that passage, his tithe. It says that he gave him the tenth, and some of your translations will say that he gave him the tithe. And so he does good there. He trusts the Lord with his finances and says, okay, I'm, I'm putting you first. And it's at that point that things begin to move for Abraham rather rapidly. Then the next question, the next test that we face, and, and you'll, you'll recall we've talked in previous Bible studies where if you don't pass this test, you really can't go on to the next one and, and, until you work it out and work through it. You know, you really can't trust God with your life until you put your trust in him in order to become your God. I mean, you've got to kind of settle that one before you go on. Does that make sense? So Abraham settles chapter 14, he comes to chapter 15, and chapter 15 is very simply this, will I trust his promises when it seems impossible? God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, here's my plan for you. I'm going to give you a son. Now Abraham is 75 years old at that point. Sarah, his wife, Sarai, are still in, in where we are in the study. She is 65 at that, at that time. And uh, God comes to him and says, I'm going to give you a son. Well, 10 years go by, or 7, 8, 10 years, we don't really know. But somewhere in, in Abraham's 80s, it doesn't appear that it's working out. And so as it's not working out, you know, Abraham's a little frustrated. And, uh, you, you know, what, what am I going to do? But Abraham says, you know, I'm going to trust you, Lord. And here I am in my 80s. And you'll recall from last week, it says, Abraham, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So here's Abraham. He's in his mid-80s at this point. He's received the promise when he's 75. The years go by. God comes back when he's in his 80s and, and gives him the same promise again. And, and Abraham says, okay, Lord, I'm going to believe you. So here we have, in Abraham's life, we have faith. We have lukewarm faith. We have non-faith. We got good faith, bad faith. We've got, you know, sometimes he does good, and sometimes he doesn't do so good. And it's interesting, and I want you to write this down because this is such a truth of walking with the Lord. Sometimes, through failure, we learn to trust. You see, Abraham at times makes some good decisions, and he's a believer. He loves the Lord. He's walking with God. But at some points in his life, he makes some really dumb decisions. Now, I I don't want to give too much self-disclosure here, but is there anybody here, after you became a believer, you've made some really stupid mistakes? Okay couple of people. Good, good. So this hopefully will give you some encouragement. But it's interesting how God will use sometimes our failures in order to bring us to the place where we learn to trust God at a greater level. It's interesting that the psalmist David wrote about this, and notice what David said. David says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, I obey your word. Now that's interesting because David's basically saying that, you know, God, before I made some really stupid decisions and the bottom fell out of my life, I did go astray. But you used that, and now where I'm at in my life, I keep your word. I follow your word. I obey your word. So sometimes God allows us to experience the results of our decisions in order to bring us to that place of failure where we learn to trust God. So sometimes our failures turn out to be good because God uses them. Does that make sense? It's the same way with us as it was with the psalmist, as it was with Abraham. It's the same with us. Notice this verse on your outline. The Bible says, being confident of this, that he who began 
a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, like us, Abraham has made some really bad decisions. Some good decisions, some bad decisions. And and yet, what we've seen as Abraham has kind of walked out on God, uh, you'll recall in chapter 12 when he passes his wife off as his sister, that's not a good decision. But as he makes some of these bad decisions in this, God never lets go of Abraham. God never turns to Abraham and says, you know what? We're done. I mean, you know, here I appear to you. I'm God. I give you these promises. I I take you to the promised land. The first side of trouble, what do you do? You head out the door. You know, you have no faith. You call yourself a believer. God never does that. Now, why is that so important? Because as God never does that to Abraham, God never does that to you and I. Does that make sense? And what I so appreciate about the Bible is that the Bible, unlike other books of faith, other books of religion, the Bible never portrays the the leading people, you might say, like Father Abraham, it never portrays them as superheroes. It portrays them as real people who are going through a very real life, a real relationship with God, a, a, really, a real growing relationship. At times they do good and at times they do bad and God shows us the highlights of, our, of their lives but it also shows us the lowlights of their lives. And the reason for that is to give you and I the encouragement that if God didn't give up on Abraham, he's not going to give up on you and I. That's going to be important for our story today because we're going to see some things that Abraham does and we're going to say, God, why didn't you give up on Abraham? Because of all the stupid things that Abraham's done so far, this man of faith and his walk of faith and this growing relationship of faith, today is going to be the big stupid. So, how many of you read ahead? Is it the big stupid? Okay, well, we'll find out. Well, let's, let's see. Our story picks up today. Abram, as the father of faith, he's growing in his relationship with the Lord, as, as, as uh, the New Testament would call him the father of faith. Abram simply means the father of multitudes, father of multitudes. Not on your outline, we've covered it before. But, you know, that's kind of embarrassing to walk around and tell everybody that your name is father of multitudes when you're 85 years old and you have no kids. So, I mean, and, you know, you walk into a place and, you know, what's your name? Well, I'm father of, of multitudes. We say Abraham. We say Abram. But the reality is in the Hebrew, it meant something. So he would literally say, my name is father of multitudes. And they say, really, where's your kids? Don't have any. How old are you? 85. Okay. Change your name. Sarai. Sarai is 75 years old in our story today. Her name means princess or my princess. And so uh, she's never had a baby up to this point. And you'll recall at 75 years of age, God says, follow me. I'm going to give you a child. Abraham and Sarai get pretty excited about this. She's 65 at this time. But then the years begin to go on and not a whole lot happens. From our last chapter, it's been seven, eight, nine years, maybe, maybe um, up to the early part of the 10th year. And God comes to Abraham again and tells him once again, Abraham, you're going to have a child. And Abraham, you'll recall from last week's study, says, okay, well, I'm not really sure, God, how you're going to make this happen, but you're obviously not going to use me or Sarah to make this happen. So here's what he says. Abram said there in your outline, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, you know, you've given me no children, so a servant in my house will be my heir. Abraham is convinced that God's plan to fulfill his promise is for Abraham to give everything to his servant. He was very excited years ago about having a child, but it didn't happen. So now Abraham's kind of losing sight of the dream, losing sight of the promise, because it's just not happened. And he begins to conclude, well, maybe this is how God wants to do it. And then it goes on, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. Now that's cool because Abraham is close to 85 years of age. It's been about 10 years since Abraham received the promise, and time is ticking. And what we learn in this, and you want to write this down, one of the hardest things that you and I will ever learn, one of the hardest things that God ever asks us to do is simply to wait. And it's in that time of waiting where we begin to lose sight of what it is that God promised, 
and we begin to think, well, well you know, it's not really happening. The sun thing isn't really happening. And, uh, and since it's not happening, maybe I need to do something to make God's promise happen. Maybe there's something that I need to be part of. God said it would come from my own body. And he begins to think, but does that mean it's going to come from Sarah's body? How is this supposed to happen? I can accept that it's going to come from my body, but, but it's been so long. So now I'm wondering, well, how do I fulfill this? You know, it, it was first, I, it didn't happen. And so I just said, well, maybe God's not going to really give me a son. He's just going to give it to my servant. That's going to be the fulfillment. And I'm not all that excited about that. But I am pretty excited about God coming back and saying, you're going to have a son, but how are you going to do this? Maybe I should do something to bring this about. It's especially difficult when all you have from God is a promise. And you look at your circumstance, your situation, and as you look at it, you don't see the answer on the horizon, and you have no idea how in the world is this circumstance, this situation going to work out. I have no earthly clue, and all I have is this one promise from God. And it doesn't look like it's going to work out. For instance, you're here today, and maybe you're single, and uh, you know the promises uh, very simply in the book of Genesis early on, God said it's not good for man to be alone. Can I get a witness? And, and right now, you know, you're going, okay, God, I know that you've made me. And ladies, you know, if it's not good for man to be alone, then, you know, it's not good for you to be alone. And you're going to need one of them, and he's going to need, you know, one of you. And so the promise is for both. And God says, I didn't really make you to be single. I want you to be married. But, but right now, as you look around, you see no earthly idea of how in the world this is going to happen, and there's nobody on the horizon. And it's in that time when you become tempted to go outside of God's plan and God's provision and not wait on God and begin to take matters in your own hand. And our counseling is filled with people who've done that. And it never works out happily. There's usually a lot of frustration. Notice what David said in a time of waiting. He said, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I put my hope. Here's what he's saying. I'm waiting. He tells you twice that he's waiting. And he says, all I can hope in is God's word. I have no idea how it's going to work out. All I can hope in is his his word. And David gives us in this one little verse a picture of what it means to be spiritually mature. It's very different than our cultural concept of what it means to be a mature believer. In our society, when we think of mature believers, we think of very religious people, who typically will ascribe to a list of do's and don'ts. You know, do not dance, do not smoke, do not chew, and do not date girls that do, that sort of thing. And we have this list of things that we do or we don't do, and as long as we keep the list, we feel as though we are spiritual. And yet at the first sign of trouble, instead of taking a stand and saying, I'm trusting in the Lord, those same people, many times myself included at times, who would not do this, 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 and this, but when we're faced with the first sign of trouble, we freak out and there's no trust. There's a list, but there's no trust. Or we have this concept in our culture of somebody who's very spiritual, and we think they're very Middle Eastern or Asian of some sort, walking around. How many of you grew up watching Kung Fu? Was that the coolest show in the world? Some of you weren't even born back then. Too bad. But you'll remember Kwai Chain Kang constantly walking around? Hello. How are you? You know, and he'd give some proverb and everybody would go, wow, you're so deep, you know, as though being soft like that. And then if you're like me, I grew up as a Southern Baptist and uh, we would have like movie night at our church and they'd bring in the, the, the movies of Jesus and Jesus was coming, he'd give the Sermon on the Mount and he'd go, blessed are the poor in spirit. And so it was a Jesus with no personality, you know. And then, then, you know, you always wonder about the scene where Jesus makes the whip and clears the temple, you know. How does that personality, Jesus, do that? Shoo. Out. <laughs> it doesn't add up. Here, here's what I want to suggest to you. That it may, it may be that there's some things that God causes to set aside, but spiritual, spiritual maturity has a whole lot more to do with trusting God in every circumstance rather than having no spine. Has a lot more to do with trusting God to take you in places that you've never dreamed to go further in your faith than than it has with keeping a list of rules. And so we want to take our cue 
from the Bible as to what it means to be a man or woman of faith. And the picture is more of somebody who grows increasingly in their trust of God in every area of their life, not necessarily in keeping a list of things that the Bible never talks about. Some things the Bible talks about. Keep that list. Some things the Bible never talks about. Make sense? Okay, that's like the longest intro in the history of preaching. So we pick up our story today as Abraham makes the big blunder. And in verse 1 of chapter 16, it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar, or Hagar, however you'd want to pronounce that. Now, Abraham at this point probably has several thousand servants uh, in, as part of his extended family. And uh, you'll recall a couple of weeks ago, Abraham had an army of at least 318 guys we, who went to war. We don't know how many guys stayed home to guard the family, but he takes 318. They all have families. And so in this large extended group of people traveling with, with uh, Abraham, there's this one girl. She's Egyptian, and uh, she's apparently rather young, whose name was Hagar. And uh, where did he get her? How did she become part of this extended family? Well, it was back in chapter 12 when God calls Abraham into the promised land, and all of a sudden there's a famine. And God, as Abraham looks at this famine, he freaks out. Instead of waiting on God's provision, he heads to Egypt. And you'll recall the story. I put it there in your outline. It says there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh treated Abram well for her sake, for Sarai's sake. I've cut, cut and paste some of this. And Abram would... Um, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, and then Pharaoh also gave him male men servants and maid servants. So Abraham, you'll recall, goes where he shouldn't go, and ultimately he's going to get what he shouldn't get, which is a great point if I could have worked it out and it would have made sense. But here's the thing. When you leave the world as Egypt represents the world and you come back to the place where God has you, when Abraham left Egypt, there were some things that he probably needed to leave in Egypt. They have no business traveling along with the man of faith. Make sense? Verse 2, it says, So Sarai said to Abram, she says, Now behold, now with your pen in hand, she says, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. So here's what's going on. Sarah is bitter. She's mad at God. She's 75 years old at this point. God's given her a promise that she's going to have a baby, and, and, and it's not happened. And she's saying, you know, if God really loved me, he would have given me this baby by now. And, and how can a God of love call me a princess, call Abraham the father of multitudes, and, and yet, yet not fulfill this thing? I mean, what kind of God is he? If he was really a God of love, he would do this. And, you know, and the bottom line is God has failed me. You know, I gave God some time, and he didn't fulfill his promise. And because he didn't fulfill his promise, it's time for me to take matters in my hand, and I'm going to make sure that this promise gets fulfilled. And so I'm going to do things. i got to do what i got to do. And after all, God helps those who help themselves, and so I'm going to take matters into my own hands. She's tired of going through life without having this burden fulfilled. And so she's going to fulfill it on her own. Now, let me just ask you, if you've been reading the Bible for any length of time, how's this going to work out? Good or bad? Okay, good. So you're getting the gist of the Bible at this point. So I want you to notice, and I want you to write this down. Like Sarah, like Sarah, many times, or like us, Sarah will blame God but won't seek God. And here's what you're going to find in this chapter. There's a lot of blaming of God but there's not a lot of seeking of God. As a matter of fact, nobody prays in this chapter. Nobody seeks the Lord. Sarah becomes bitter, and so she does not seek the Lord. She only blames the Lord. And in verse 2, it says, Sarah said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. You know, this is the God we're supposed to trust in. And, you you know, please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. So Sarah concocts a plan, and uh, the plan comes from, at this time, there was what was called the Code of Hammurabi, and which was sort of the law of the land in the Middle East at that time. And part of the Code of Hammurabi, if I'm Hammurabi, would would be this. If you had a wife, you're a person of means, and you had servants, then what would happen would be if your wife didn't give you a child, then your wife could go to her servants and she could choose a girl for you. 
And you could get her pregnant. And as you got her pregnant, when she gave birth, she'd be kind of like a surrogate mother. And so that child would become the child of the woman who could not give you a child, your wife. And so this girl over here would become kind of a wife, but kind of a lesser wife. And so most Bible scholars believe that this is just the practice of the time. It's written of in the Code of Hammurabi. And so this, this is, uh, you know, her plan. Make sense? So Sarah says, I have this Egyptian maid. You know, she's young, she's attractive. And I'm going to let her have my baby. And it's going to fulfill what I want because what I want is a baby. And if I have a baby, then I will be happy. And God wants me to be happy, right? Let me ask you a question. Does it matter how they have the baby? In God's eyes? So it's not just being happy. So here's what we're going to find. The God of the promises is also the God of the means. And so if he gives you the promise... He has the means to fulfill it. She says that a baby will make me happy. And she says, God wants me to be happy, right? So here is how I can accomplish what I want, which is to be happy. And after all, God wants me to be happy. Now, is this wise or is this stupid? Okay, now here's why I say this. There are times when I will meet a couple who are in a relationship, and it's the wrong relationship. One is a believer, one is an alien. And and it's just, and and you'll say to the believer, you'll say, you know, I I just, you know, what, what are you thinking? And they'll say something, well, God wants me to be happy, right? So it can't be wrong if it's leading me to happiness because God wants me to be happy. Well, we're gonna see in this story that not everybody's happy. Well, In Sarah's case, God wants Sarah to be happy. He wants her to have the joy of having a baby. But God's joy never comes from sin. That makes sense? And this is going to turn out to be very frustrating in the end. And right now, you and I are still feeling the results of what's going to take place. Because sin never really brings a lasting joy. It brings frustration. So in this, Sarah does what we do today, and I'm not going to elaborate on this too much, but Sarah takes sex, marriage, and children, and she separates them as separate issues, marriage, sex, and children. And it's the same thing that we do today. Sex is supposed to be in marriage, one guy, one gal, who produce children. In our culture today, as it was with Sarah, she took sex, she removed marriage to have a child. Ultimately, it's going to lead to a great deal of frustration. In God's eyes, sex, marriage, and children are not separate issues. They are one issue, one issue. In our culture, we separate that, which is why 40% of all children in this church and in this community and in our country will go to bed at night with one parent not being there because somebody separated sex, marriage, and children and looked at them as different issues. In God's eyes, they are the same issue. Does that make sense? In our church right now, There are those who right now you are separating sex and marriage. You are having sex, but you are not married. And there may be children involved, but you have separated what God never chose to separate. Sex, marriage, children. One issue, not three separate categories. Make sense? Okay, for God it's all one issue. Now, Abraham knows the promise of God that a child will come from his body. And, uh, you know, but the thing is, God never said Sarah will give birth. He just says, God says, I'm going to give you a child through your body. Now, why didn't he say it, it will come through Sarah? Because he shouldn't have to. Because Abraham's married. It's a given that this is God's plan, this man with this woman. 
that's obvious as to who it will be with. Does that make sense? Well, verse 2, just for fun, let's read it again. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And how will Abraham respond? Drum roll, please. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Well, isn't that special? Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. That's like the biggest understatement in the whole Bible, you know. Okay, honey, you know, whatever, you know, whatever. Now, now, apparently, I'm a family guy. If you think it'll help the family, you know, I'm a giver. So it's just, Abraham, you know, says, okay, now, now, now consider this. What makes this plan that's so wrong seem so right? Well, a couple of things. First of all, This plan that's so wrong seems so right. First of all, I'm going to suggest because this plan comes from a much respected source. This is somebody that Abraham really respects. This is his lifelong partner. This is somebody that that he cares about. and They've been giving wisdom to one another and discernment. And and Sarah has certainly been somebody that Abraham's gone to in his life when when he needed wisdom. And uh, so this is somebody that he respects. And, uh, you know, apparently she's thought it through. She thinks it's a good idea. Now, why is it so important? Because sometimes we take information from people who are respected sources, but they don't really, they're not really considering what God's word says. They're not really considering what God's plan is. They're not really considering the God's promise that maybe he's given to you, but they're very respected. And, uh, and so uh, sometimes, you know, you, you can turn on Oprah and from the world's perspective, very wise and very good and Dr. Phil, but, but they, they don't always take into account what God's word says, but they're very respected. And sometimes what will take place is God's word will say one thing, they will say another. And because they're respected, we shift from following what God says to maybe what somebody who is respected in our world has to say about a subject and we follow them. Does that make sense? So write this down very quickly. We will either get our wisdom from the word or the world. God's word to Abraham is, I'm going to give you a son. It's it's obvious that the son's going to come through Sarai, and so you don't need to sweat that. But right now, he's getting his wisdom from somewhere else. There's another reason why this plan that's so wrong seems so right. It's because, and you want to write this down, this plan is very attractive to the flesh. And the Bible says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, now you say, what, what do you mean it's a, attractive to the flesh? Well, Sarah comes to Abraham, and she has this very young maid, maiden and says, here's the plan. Abraham apparently doesn't think about it too long. It doesn't say that he prays about it, but it seems like a way to fulfill what it is that God wants to do. Notice what it says on your outline. I'm going to read this whole part. You might, you might want to underline a couple of things. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, underline that, fornication, underline that, that's sex outside of marriage, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, underline that, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, those are the things of the flesh. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit, the outcome of what it means to have God's Spirit inside of you, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, we might say patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, that's being walking with God when it doesn't make sense, gentleness, self-control, self-control, against such things there are no law. Now, what is this plan appealing to? Is it appealing to self-control? Is it appealing to um, just the long-suffering, the patience, the waiting on the Lord? Or is it appealing to a lust that Abraham might have? God's plan never appeals to our flesh. God's plan always appeals to the Spirit, which manifests itself in patience, long-suffering, seeking the Lord, something that Abraham is not doing. Does that make sense? So write this down. This plan is expedient, but it's not obedient. 
So here's what Abraham is going to learn in every one of us who goes outside of God's will and makes decisions at times, looking to the world for wisdom, looking to our flesh without seeking the Lord. Here's what we're going to learn. You want to write this down. Big decisions without big prayers lead to big problems. Big decisions without big prayers lead to big problems. Before you marry that one, you pray big. That's a big decision. Did you know this? Big decisions without big prayers lead to big problems. Well, verse 2b, once again, he says, Abraham listened to the voice of his wife. Well, verse 3, it goes on. It says, now, after Abraham lived, underline 10 years, 10 years. I mean, how long do you wait for the God's promise? In the land of Canaan, Abraham's wife, Sarai, Abraham's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband, Abraham, as, underline, his wife. Honey, here's a new wife. It's been 10 years. You're going to have a new wife. Uh, Moses will always refer to her as the maidservant. Sarai will refer to her as his wife. We'll see how that works out. Verse 4. Um, I, I put verse 4 on your outline. Let's just read it from the outline. So, Abram slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. I'm sure this is creating lots of happiness in the family now as the plan is working out. Abraham slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. When Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress Sarai with contempt. So here's what's going on. We find that in our story, Hagar is an opportunist. You see, Hagar is young. young. She's a, a maidservant. And uh, she has a plan all along. She's obviously agreed to Sarai's plan. But here's here's Hagar's plan. Hagar's plan is this. Abraham is wealthy. He's elderly. And he uh, has a lot of money. And if I am with him and I become a lesser wife, you might say, a number two wife, but he gets me pregnant and I give him a son, he's going to love me my son is going to grow up, my son's going to get all of this stuff, and that is going to make me wealthy. Now, aren't you glad that women never do that today? (laughs) And so she begins, once she's pregnant, to treat Sarai like Sarai is the third wheel. And Sarai doesn't like it a whole lot. And uh, so it's also interesting that you probably get the the sense that that Abraham is pretty excited that he's finally having a child. He's having a son. And here's Hagar, and she's pregnant. And he's probably walking up and going, how are you feeling? You feeling okay? Are you resting? You want to get your feet up? Did the baby kick? Can I feel the baby kick? You want a massage? And Sarah is watching this. Now, ladies, you know, I've never been a woman, but let me ask you a question. Is this going to make Sarah happy and not so happy? (laughs) This is going to create happy family, not so happy family. Yeah, women are funny. So anyways, (laughs) Sarah begins to think at this point. She says, this is not what I envisioned. This is not what I was thinking was going to happen. You know, she's younger than me. Now she's pregnant. And she's probably not going to want to give me the child to raise when, when the child's born. And Abraham now is giving her his full attention. So... Uh, verse 5, I've also put on your outline. I just like this translation better. It says there in your outline. Then It's on your outline, right? Good. Then Sarai said to Abram, It's all your fault. For now, this servant girl of mine despises me, though I gave her the privilege of being your wife. May the Lord judge you for doing this to me. Abraham's going, this was your plan. You thought this up. And she's like, it's all your fault, you know. And now she blames Abraham because he does what she told him to do. And now she's a little self-righteous. Now, guys, aren't you glad women never do that anymore? (laughs) Sigmund Freud, after 30 years of counseling, said this. He said, I only have one question of women. What do you want? So, there's always a problem with two women. 
And uh, so, verse 6, it says, Then Sarah, Abraham said to Sarai, Behold, your maidservant is in your power. Do with her what's good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. I don't know, she fled from her presence. She, she says, that's it. You know, Sarah, you know, I, you know, thought I'll be happy. I'll have a baby, and once I have a baby, I'll be happy. But, but she doesn't seem all that happy. And Abraham thought, you know, I'll get sex, and I'll have this other woman, two wives, and then I'll have a baby. But it doesn't appear that Abraham's all that happy. And Hagar thought, I'll get him, he'll get me pregnant, I'll have a child, I'll inherit all this stuff, and I will be happy. And apparently, she's not all that happy. And the last part of verse 6, it says that she, um, she fled from her presence. She's running. She's going home to mama. And we'll see that in verse 7. Verse 7, it says, verses 7 and 8, says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by a spring on the way to Shur, underline that. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, underline Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Now, a couple of things in this verse as uh, we go on. First of all, in the Old Testament, when it says an angel of the Lord appeared, an angel of the Lord appeared, it typically refers to an angel of the Lord, any angel of the Lord. When it says the angel of the Lord appeared, it typically refers to Jesus showing up in, in a Christophany, showing up in the Old Testament. We'll see how that works. So, but just trust for now, and we'll see in a few moments that this is Jesus who's showing up. It's interesting when he shows up. She is... Uh, heading back home, the town of Shur is on the way to Egypt. Shur just means the Hebrew word for a wall. So literally, she's running from her mistress Sarai, but she's running to or into a wall. She's on her way to. So it's interesting that she's headed back to Egypt. We know Egypt in the Bible, if you look at the symbology or symbolism, uh, typically refers to the world. So here she is. She's headed back to the world. She's about to run into, sure, a wall, and she doesn't know what's ahead of her, and, and it's in this place that Jesus shows up in her life. It's interesting that she's in a place of difficulty and uncertainty. She is probably asking herself, how in the world am I going to provide for this baby? How in the world am I, who's going to want me? I'm, I'm, you know, I already have a child. And in that culture, you didn't marry women with, with children. And so she's, she's in that place of emotional difficulty. It's interesting to me that when Jesus shows up, and this is, uh, I think, very interesting, that she's not looking for Jesus, and, but he just shows up and right in the middle of this place where she's in that place of difficulty. She's not asking for Jesus, and apparently she doesn't even know who Jesus is. But it doesn't stop him from showing up right here in this place where she's ready to listen to somebody else, maybe other than herself. So he shows up, and he begins to talk to her. And you, you'll notice in the verses where he says, where are you coming, where have you been, where are you coming from, and where are you going? Tell me about your past, tell me about your future. And so Sarah, or Hagar says, I'm fleeing from my, my maidservant or my mistress, Sarah. It's interesting, she doesn't tell her about any sin that she might have committed in this. Verse 8, um, he said, verse 8, it says, Hagar, Sarai's maid. Did you underline that? The angel of the Lord says, Hagar, Sarai's maid. Did you underline that? Okay, verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress. Underline that, return to your mistress. And submit yourself to her authority. Now, why is that so important? Well, in verse 8, he calls her um, Hagar, Sarai's mistress, and then, or Sarai's maid. And in verse 9, he says, I want you to return to Sarai. What this means is apparently God does not recognize this marriage. So write that down. Because he doesn't say, return to Abraham, your husband, and be the wife that you've been called to be. In this case, uh, he says that you, know, you return to Sarai. Sarai is the one who called her a wife. God does not recognize that. Um, this is not a, a treatise on marriage and remarriage. That's not the point. So uh, there, there's times when God does that. But he says, submit to Sarai. And it's interesting because the word submit is a word that we don't really like in our culture. But here's what the angel's saying. Here's what Jesus is saying. I'm doing something in your life. In order to do something in your life, you need to go back. I'm doing something in Sarai's life. And one day she's going to have a child, but I'm doing something in her life. 
I'm also doing something in Abraham's life. So right now, you three who have all sinned, you need to figure this out. Because right now, inside of you, there's a baby. And you sinned, Sarai sinned, and Abram sinned. But this baby didn't. And this baby needs a dad. And so part of my plan is going to be worked out by you going back into an uncomfortable situation that you don't want to go back to. Make sense? Verse 10, it says, Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will too, they will, they will be too many to count. Now, very quickly, in this story, God blesses everybody. Here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that God's going to give Abraham another son. He's actually going to have two. We're going to see that Sarai is going to have a child when she's 90 years old. Hagar is going to grow old. She's going to be provided for. Her son Ishmael is going to become a great nation. So everybody is going to be blessed in this story. So God has a way of taking the situation and working it out. Verse 10. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael. It just means the Lord hears. Because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man, uh, which, is, which is great because some of you have the King James Version, which we were raised on, and when the pastor would read this verse, he would skip over that part. Because in the King James, it doesn't say donkey. Sometimes I've wanted to call people, you're nothing more than a King James Version donkey. And, and um, I don't. But I've wanted to. How many of you have the King James Version? Does it say donkey? Don't say it. So, okay, he says, he says he will be a wild donkey of a man. Okay, um, so it just says wild man in your translation. A little cleaned up, good. Uh, his hand will be against everyone. Angel's basically saying he's going to be A-D-D, D-D, D-D-D-D. This guy, when he comes out, he's going to be fighting everybody, everybody. Now, and everyone's hand will be against him kind of guy you don't want as a neighbor. And he will live east to all his brothers. Now, just very quickly, um, Hagar gives birth to Ishmael. Ishmael's descendants occupy the land that is east of Isaac's descendants. Isaac's descendants inhabit the land of Israel. Ishmael's descendants inhabit the land that is east of Israel. We call them the Arabs. 3,000 years ago is when this problem started. The angel said it will be constant forever. They will be against one another. And, uh, and uh, so, you know, you, you decide if the Bible is true in this point. Verse 13. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. For she said to him, I have remained alive after seeing him. Therefore, the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy, for behold, it is in Kadesh Barad. Um, it just means the God who sees me. Interesting um, that this is the only place in the Bible where somebody gives a name to God. This is a Gentile woman who calls God the God who sees me. So, verse 14, it says, or verse 15, it says, So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the, the name of his son. Uh, which Hagar, Hagar bore Ishmael. It's also interesting in the Bible that many times when an angel shows up, the angel to a pregnant woman, the angel gives the woman the name of the child. You know, John the Baptist, and you have, you know, throughout the Bible, many times where that takes place. Um, Abram was 86 years old when, uh, when, when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Now, very quickly, uh, there's, there's a lot of things that we could say about this. But I'm going to let the Lord do most of the talking to our individual hearts. God gives you and I promises. And there are times when those promises aren't coming about in the time frame that we want them to come about. A growing 
relationship of faith involves trusting God when he has given you a promise and you don't see how it's going to work out. And many times in our efforts to help God accomplish his promise, we basically create a situation that takes God years to unravel. Right now today, if you're here and there's something that God has given you a promise on, you're waiting on the Lord on something, but something inside of you is saying, you know what, I need to take matters in my own hand. Before you take matters into your own hand, remember, in this story, nobody sought the Lord. Nobody prayed. And Abraham learned, and you and I are learning 3,000 years later, that big decisions made without big prayer lead only to big problems. That makes sense? And with that, we close today. As Jeff comes out and closes us in song, I want to pray for you. And as I pray for you, after the service and after Jeff closes us in song, there will be prayer partners standing by in the front. And if you've come to the place where you're really wrestling with the promise, or maybe you're saying, I just don't know, should I keep waiting or, or what? And you want somebody to come pray with you. I encourage you to make your way down to the front And just don't leave here today thinking that you're going to handle a situation that God wants to handle in such a way that that you're only going to create a lot of frustration. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I I just look in my own life, and certainly we all look in our, our lives at the times where we stepped in, and apart from you, we decided to accomplish what we thought was your will. And sometimes we thought you wanted us to be more happy than we were holy. And sometimes we thought that you wanted us to have a relationship when you're really calling us to wait on you and to to be silent and to grow in you as you prepared us. And Lord, there are times when we've launched out financially and you were calling us to wait. There are times when you've given us specific promises and there came a time when we just didn't listen. And I pray, Father, today right now in this auditorium that if you've spoken if you've given a promise, if you've given a vision, if you've given a hope, and right now that that vision, that hope, that promise just does not appear that it's going to come to pass. And right now, if there are those in this congregation who've been contemplating maybe changing course or, or even getting off your path completely, I pray that you would bring each and every one back to the place where we answer, we believe, we trust that your promises are true, that your path is sure, that your plan is perfect. And maybe, Father, even just breathe life into that vision, that hope, and that promise again. And may we walk out of here today once again renewed in our trust of your wisdom, your plan, your promises. I thank you for each and every one who comes here so faithfully to hear your word, to seek you, to learn to grow in our relationship with you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.